Well, hey, you're listening to the Resonate Church Monmouth Sermons Podcast. Whether you're a part of the Resonate family or you're just a friend of ours tuning in, we're so glad that you're here. We are a church here in Monmouth, Oregon that exists for the college campus and our broader community. So if you'd like to learn more or get further connected, head over to resonate.net slash Monmouth. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's sermon. We're three, three weeks into a sermon series through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we now know has been famously called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most lengthiest, most comprehensive teaching recorded in all of history, and it's in one place in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And uh, it's, it's a little bit like this when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you've ever moved to a new place or maybe traveled to a place you haven't been before. When you get to a new place, one of the adventures of getting to that place is beginning to need to figure out your way around the city or the town, right? So you land on the ground and you're like, how do I navigate this place? What are the quickest ways around town? What are the best places to eat maybe? Where are the places I need to go to get my necessities? And the Sermon on the Mount in some ways is like us getting to see our way around Jesus' kingdom. What, is, what does Jesus' kingdom look like? What does God's kingdom look like? What does King Jesus' reign and rule look like when we come under it, when we submit to him, when we come to know him and follow him? And so tonight, just to get straight into it, uh, last two weeks we looked at Jesus' sermon introduction. Last week was Jesus talking about us being salt and light as his kingdom citizens. Tonight, Jesus is taking a left turn. And he's going to begin to answer the question, how should kingdom citizens conduct themselves when they interact with other people? How should Christians, how should kingdom citizens conduct themselves and live their lives when it comes to how we interact with other people? Jesus is beginning to talk about kingdom ethics and kingdom morals. And I just wanna say it out the gate here tonight. There are some challenging words in our passage that we're gonna look at from Jesus tonight. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as he's been called, once famously said, The same sun, S-U-N, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax is the same sun that hardens the clay. What he was getting at was this. Some people, when they're confronted by Jesus and his grace and truth, they're melted by him. They're humbled. They're brought low to receive openly his, his grace and his mercy. But some people, when when they're confronted by Jesus, the son, S-O-N, they are hardened. Their pride is elevated to the next level. They defend themselves. They make excuses. They're hardened by Jesus' confrontation. And so tonight, before we get into this, I I don't usually do this. I just want to pray. I just want to pray. We're going to get into some challenging words from Jesus. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do and soften our hearts, to soften the soil of our hearts tonight. So so let's pray together. Holy Spirit... Would you please, please do what only you can do? Holy Spirit, would you humble us? Would you bring us low, Holy Spirit? Would you, as we interact with Jesus and his grace and truth tonight, would you free us from the need to defend ourselves, to make excuses, to point fingers? But would you bring us to a place where we can be low and humble to receive the help and the mercy and the salvation we need in Jesus. Holy Spirit, please do that tonight. Put this in your name, Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. 
So Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 is where we're going to be beginning tonight. And uh, we got a lot to cover. Jesus is tackling four significant topics. He's going through these four topics, anger, lust, divorce, and oaths. So that's where we're going to be tonight. So starting in verse 20, you can kind of see, maybe there's a division in your Bible, that verse 20 kind of marks the end of his, his first statement, and it's a transitional statement to him beginning to talk about anger. So verse 20 reads this, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to imagine it. Jesus is up on a hill. He's giving these words, multitude of people listening. And in this moment, everyone's jaw would have hit the floor. Everybody's jaw would have hit the floor. The scribes were people who went to school for like 30 years to study and interpret the Old Testament law. The Pharisees were the most religious rule followers anyone knew. And Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed them. And they would have gone, how is that possible, Jesus? They're the best rule keepers we know. They're the, they're the most religious people we know. How is that possible? Almost as if to say, Jesus is going to say, let me tell you. Let me tell you how it's going to be possible. Let me show you what exceeding righteousness truly looks like. So verse 21, Jesus gets straight into it, and he doesn't hold back. Exceeding righteousness, keep it in mind. Verse 21. You've heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and, and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. <clears throat> the Pharisees, the scribes, even you and I, let's be real. Even you and I, we think righteousness, righteousness is simply not physically harming somebody. It's, it's not committing murder. And Jesus stops us in our tracks and he goes beyond the external actions and he takes a flashlight and he shines it right into the depths of our hearts and he says, yeah, but what about what's going on in there? What about what's going on in there? If you sit in, if you wallow in, if you stew in anger towards another person, you are guilty of the same thing in my eyes, a, a murder, a murder. And so Jesus sets the pace. He says, here's what the ethics in my kingdom look like. Not just don't murder someone. He's going back to the 10 commandments and, and that's true. That would be sin and a grievous evil. He says, that's not the bar. The bar is even higher than that. Don't hold on to anger towards someone. And we go, Jesus, hold up, bro. You, you're being a little harsh, aren't you, Jesus? You're talking about me just like being a little upset at someone and me calling someone a name and you're talking about divine judgment, Jesus? Like me being angry at someone, that doesn't actually hurt people. Why, why are you so up in arms about this, Jesus? Well, let's just, just think about it with me for a moment. Just think about it. If you get to a place where you begin to get upset at someone and you allow your anger towards them to sit within you and it begins to take grip in your heart, it begins to corrupt you, doesn't it? It begins to transform 
your affections, your desires, your cravings, your mind, and eventually it will inevitably transform your actions if you don't seek forgiveness and reconciliation. So we may not murder someone physically, probably because we're afraid of the legal ramifications and there's like a law system in place. But we will, and let's just be real, we've all done this, we will murder their reputation. Gossip, slander, hey, did you hear they did this? Murdering their reputation. We will publicly murder their character. If you call someone a name, if you call someone a fool, what are you doing? You're dishonoring the fact that they have a given name and you're replacing their identity with what you say about them. Or we will, number three, murder their opportunities for flourishing and joy. So we'll move towards certain people in love, in pursuit, and we'll pull away from those people. We won't give them the same opportunities. You see, at the core, it's still murder. It's still murder. It's internally dehumanizing someone. It's considering that they bear less of the image of God, internally worthy of dignity, of honor, and respect, and saying, nope, not true about you. And guess what? I'm also playing the seat of God by determining when you should suffer at my hand. It's serious stuff. In verse 23, Jesus says it gets even more serious. He says, relational strife seriously affects our relationship with God. So much so, he says, if you're offering something at the altar, then stop what you're doing if you have something against someone or if something has some, someone has something against you and go be reconciled. So Christian, I just, like, I'm, I'm going off what Jesus says here. I'm not adding anything to, do, to this. Christian, if you have beef, conflict, strife with someone in the church, and there's like a name and a face popping up in your mind right now. Maybe don't do it right now because that'd be awkward. But stop coming to Sunday gathering. Stop going to huddle. Don't you dare get out your money and put it in the joy box or give your tithe online. Jesus says, stop doing those things. Go be reconciled first and squash the beef. The question, again, is, is why? Why, Jesus, why would you say that? And it's because Jesus is saying, because I care about what's in your heart. I care about what's in here. Don't you dare think, friend, that God wants your physical presence but wants you to have a hateful or bitter heart all the while. Don't you dare think that. The reason I think I can speak passionately about this is because this is very personal for me. A very personal example, some years ago, I had a dear friend in my life and they did something that upset me and hurt me. And, and I tried to tell myself, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Ben, why are you getting so upset about this? And I tried to sweep it under the rug. Anyone ever done that? Yep, just me? Okay, yep, just me. <laughs> I tried to sweep it under the rug and, and try, try as hard as I can. Uh, this thing would not erase from my mind. I began having this wake-up call moments where I realized when, when people are talking about this person in public, I couldn't say anything positive about them. Like I couldn't muster it up to say anything good about them. When, when I was in, in places where they were around, I wouldn't move towards them in love. I would pull back and say, I'd move towards them in love, but not this person. And, and the help, with the help of community and my wife and people coming around me and, and just like the spirit convicted me, I had this wake-up call where I was like, I've been murdering this person. I've been murdering this person. And God's not okay with that in my heart. And so I had to go to them, I had to confess, I had to ask for their forgiveness, and they were gracious and they forgave me, but I heard face to face about how my sin had affected this person and hurt them. 
And it wasn't until that moment that I ridded that out of my heart. So friend, let's take this seriously. Man, our, our world and our hearts speak in terms of, of fairness. Our world and our culture says, well, hey, they screwed me over, so I, I deserve to be angry at them. Or, hey, they didn't meet my expectations, so it's only fair that they have this coming their way. M- may I ask you, Christian, I'm talking to you tonight. May I ask you, how was your Lord, how did your Lord respond when he was treated unfairly? When he was crucified on the cross for that which he did not commit? He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. So Christian, don't, church, we, do, we cannot be a people who claim the forgiveness and mercy and patience of our God and then walk around carrying hate and bitterness in our hearts. We have to rid it out of us. Jesus coming in hot. Number two, lust. He keeps going. Verse 27, you've heard it said, again, Jesus going back to the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, taking it up a notch, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, we think, the Pharisees, the scribes, we think righteousness is is just not physically committing adultery, not having sex with someone who's not my spouse. And Jesus takes out his flashlight and he shines it into our hearts. He says, yeah, but, but what about what's going on in there? He says, if you simply entertain sexual desire for someone you're not married to, just entertaining. You're committing adultery. It's the same thing in my eyes. And again, this, this is tough for us. Our culture and our hearts say, whoa, 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 Jesus, slow down, man. Jesus, you can't be serious. You can't be serious about this. And I, I think part of that is because our, our culture um, is so embedded with this idea of lust. It's normalized in our society. So we have the pornography industry, we have Hollywood, we have entertainment as a whole. It's normalized pursuing any and all sexual desire. And so we're confronted when Jesus comes to us and and has these words for us. And so our our world and our defensive hearts maybe, again, real talk, real talk. You say, all right, Jesus, okay, I hear what you're saying, but Jesus, uh, you know this about me because you know, you're God, you know this. Um, Jesus, I don't have a spouse, so I have these sexual desires and I need an outlet for them, right, Jesus? So uh, it's okay if I just lust a little bit or I do these things a little bit, right, Jesus? Because my lust really isn't hurting anyone. Or maybe if you are a married person, say, well, Jesus, you, you know my marriage, you know my situation, and you know that inside my marriage, my, my sexual desire is not being fulfilled to its fullest. And so I need some kind of outlet, right, Jesus? Plus, Jesus, hear me, I'm not actually committing adultery, Jesus. And, and plus, my, they don't need to know about it. Lust, lust isn't really hurting anyone. Jesus says, nope, nope. I care about what's going on inside of you. And friend, can I just be honest with you tonight? Lust does hurt people. Lust does hurt people. 
the porn industry harms women. That's, that's statistical data. Women are exploited, coerced, abused. It's not just a harmless video on the screen. May we, may we wake up to this reality. And, and listen, lust hurts you. Lust hurts you and it hurts me. When, when you lust, you're taking someone else who's been made in the image of God, who's worthy of dignity and honor and respect, and you're saying, you exist for my selfish pleasure. Do you realize how dehumanizing that is? And any time we dehumanize someone else, we in the process are dehumanized. It's animalistic. And at the root of lust, it's, it's us saying to God, God, you're not enough for me. God, you're not enough for me. I'm not satisfied in you. I'm not satisfied with the life you've given me. I'm not satisfied being single right now. I'm not satisfied in my marriage right now. So God, I need to take something that, that's your beloved creation and take it for mine. It's, a serious, it's serious stuff. It's serious stuff before a holy God. But thankfully, Jesus gives a solution. He, he gives us a solution for how to address what goes on in our hearts. And Jesus' solution is to see the seriousness of our sin. You, you see the serious language he uses here. His solution is to see sin's danger, to see its poison. Um, kind of like what you see in this video. Can we bring the lights down a little bit? Just check out the screen real quick. Bring those lights down so we can see the screen. Yeah, run it back twice. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> hey, real talk, real talk. If you had three of those snakes living in your house, you would do whatever it takes to get them the heck out of there. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd probably burn my house down. Probably. Yeah. Is there anything we can do about it? Nope, just burn it down. <laughs> but, but, to, but to get serious, Jesus says it's supposed to be like that with sin. He says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Take out your eye if it causes you to sin. It's figurative language. He's saying, do whatever it takes not to lust, not to use people sexually. Do whatever it takes. So if Jesus were here in 2023, he might say, better to enter the kingdom with no TikTok <laughs> than to lust or use people sexually. Can we be real? Better to enter the kingdom and get rid of your smartphone than to lust, use people sexually. Better to enter the kingdom sharing a small bedroom with roommates where you don't have much privacy. It's kind of annoying sometimes than to lust or use people sexually. Better to enter the kingdom with your huddle or your friends annoyingly holding you accountable than to lust or use people sexually. Resonate. Uh, John Owens said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin cannot be managed. 
And it cannot be hidden, it cannot be swept under the rug. It must be repented of, it must be put to death. So it is better to lose some temporary freedoms now than to be imprisoned by lust later. So that's lust. We'll keep going. Verse 31, move on to the next subject. subject. And, and I just wanna, I wanna say here on the front side, uh, Jesus is going to begin talking about divorce. And uh, I wanna use a tone that is compassionate and sympathetic here. I wanna be really careful with my words. And, and I want you to hear if, if Ben says something that is out of line, not compassionate, not gracious, know that Jesus never will. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Raising the bar. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I know, as, as soon as we read these words, names, Faces, families come to mind. Uh, statistically speaking, probably your own family. Probably your own family. Uh, perhaps some of you in the, in the room tonight have even gone through a divorce. And, and I'm sure it's flipped your world upside down. You don't even know how to respond to Jesus' words here. I just want to say on the front end, like we've all been affected by the pain of divorce. The, the, the breaking apart of the one flesh union that God intended for his people. Um, none of us have been unaffected by the pain, the heartache that it creates. Some of the people uh, that Jess and I, are, that, that we like love the most, have gone through the hardest divorces. Um, so tonight, again, don't know your story, all of you, but, but Jesus does. And he promises to draw near if we'll, we'll humble ourselves and he'll draw near to the broken hearted. Um, so I, I just want to, I want to quickly explain, I don't have time to give a whole sermon on, on marriage and divorce, but I want to quickly explain what Jesus is doing here because I don't want us to miss what's happening. Um, so stay with me. When, when Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate. You see it on the screen. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, book in the Old Testament, chapter 24. And in Deuteronomy 24, Moses, the leader of God's people, permits divorce on the basis of a husband finding indecency in his wife. And the idea was to give her a certificate and send her away. The key word in this, you, you see it on the screen. Uh, no, it's not on the screen. Don't listen to me. The key, <laughs> the key word in this, when you go back to Deuteronomy 24, is the word permitted. Permitted. Um, in, in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you talk a lot about marriage, bro. You talk a lot about like the sacredness of marriage. Um, why then, Jesus? Pharisees trying to trick Jesus. Why, why Jesus did, uh, did Moses back in Deuteronomy 24, how come Moses commanded men to divorce their wives then? And Jesus says, stop right now. Moses did not command divorce. He permitted it because of your hardness of heart. So, so the key word is permitted right there. What had happened over time culturally was that it became common practice for men to apply the word indecency to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. So indecency could mean um, sexual immorality or it could mean messed up dinner. It could mean whatever they wanted it to mean. And what ended up happening is the beauty and glory of marriage as a durable covenant that God intended for man and for wife was dismissed as men were discarding their wives at the first sign of marriage being less than ideal. 
So here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing two things. He's reestablishing God's design for marriage. And God's design for marriage was meant to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman that chiefly is meant to reflect the eternal bond between Jesus and his church. You can't break that apart. Jesus' commitment to his church, it's enduring, it's everlasting. That's what it's meant to reflect. And number two, Jesus is affirming and protecting the women who are vulnerable in this society already. So here uh, in these verses, Jesus is calling out people who muster up reasons to separate what God has brought together. He's saying, hey, that's hardness of heart. And, And be careful if you walk into that, that's serious, that's adultery. And just to be clear, not just words for men, but these are words for anyone who would make, make a marriage vow, who would make a covenant before God for, for husbands and wives. Um, so again, I wanna be really clear here because I know I'm, I'm treading into kind of a really touchy subject. Although God never mandates or promotes divorce, there are two clear exceptions um, that God gives Christian spouses when divorce may be a solution, when it might be best. And so those two are, just to cover them really quickly. The first one is unrepentant sexual immorality. That's what, that's what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter five. And that is uh, one spouse engaging sexually with someone that is not their spouse and refuses to uh, seek reconciliation and, and admit and repent and come back. That, that's case number one where exception is permitted according to Jesus and according to God's design for marriage. Number two, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, God says that if an unbelieving spouse abandons a Christian spouse, then the one who is abandoned is free and not in sin. Uh, and and I'm, I'm in the camp that believes that stuff like ongoing habitual unrepentant sin, like physical abuse or emotional abuse, perhaps even some addictions, would, would classify as abandonment. That person is no longer commit, act, living as if they're committed to their spouse and is living like an unbeliever. Um, in either case, just, I'm almost done here. In either case, the calling and hope for any Christian couple would be that even in these cases, like even in the exception cases, the hope would be that the church that follows Jesus would come around this couple and would walk through Matthew chapter 18 with them to, to hope and to pray that, that the marriage might be restored, that the, the unrepentant spouse would see the weight of their sin, would come to genuinely repent, and that the marriage might be restored and move towards uh, restoration and, and flourishing in the future. And I know of like real stories of this happening. I've heard real stories of this happening. So uh, again, difficult subject, but Jesus covering divorce, raising the bar even on this. Uh, Okay, our last one will be quick here. Number four, oaths, down in verse 33. Again, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. Let what you, simply, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be really fast here. Jesus is showing us that integrity is a value in his kingdom and that it's a matter of the heart. I didn't know this, I learned this this week, but the word integrity comes from the math word, integer. All you math people, yeah? Am I, am I right, fact check me? I got the triangles wrong a long time, a couple weeks ago, so. 
I don't know when it comes to math. Um, uh, integer. And, and integer, if you remember back to math class, means whole number. So not a fraction, not divided, not a decimal point, but a whole number. And so the, the, the idea of integrity is to be whole. My, my actions, my life matches my speech. It's not divided. What Jesus is getting at when he, he gives us these words about oaths here, he's confronting you and I, and maybe uh, like how I did when I was a kid, when we say things like, I promise, I cross my heart and I hope to die. Just anyone else like say anything like that maybe? Just me? <laughs> Remember being a kid, all, all, like all my friends said it, I probably said it at some point, I cross my heart and I hope to die. When we make oaths like that, what, what we're doing is we're indicating that our simple yeses and nos often can't be trusted, so we need to, to like double down. You see what I'm saying? So cross my heart and I hope to die. I know I usually, like sometimes I don't tell the truth, but I'm telling the truth right now. It's showing that we, ought, like, we are dishonest and we know it. Right? You, do you see that? And what we know is, is that lying and not telling the truth is dehumanizing because we use our words to manipulate, to coerce, and to control other people. That's, that's what lying is. And again, Jesus is shining a flashlight into our hearts, saying that, that, that matters. What's flowing out of your mouth matters. And man, like, if I, if I can just get personal for a second and like talk about us. Um, I, I heard this, and, and I think it's true. Uh, apparently the new, the, the, the FOMO, you remember FOMO, fear of missing out? Apparently that's like old news, that's gone. The new FOMO is FOBO, okay? And that's fear of better options. Fear of better options. And uh, when I learned this, I was like, man, that is so true. It's so true about myself. It's so true about my generation and the next generation. We have this fear of better options. So what happens is someone comes to us and says, hey, Ben, you want to get dinner Friday night? I go, maybe if I commit to that, though, then what if something else pops up and it might be better for me? Uh, fear of better options. Hey, man, what do you, what's your living situation going to look like next year? Well, I, I don't know, but I can't commit to anything because, like, what if something better comes up? I don't want to say yes to you. I also don't want to say no to you. Fear better options. Hey, do you want to uh, join this team and, and volunteer and serve or join this huddle or join this thing? Uh, I, I, maybe fear better options. What if something better comes along? We're, we're the worst about this. I'm the worst about this. And Jesus is saying, guys, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In, in other words, just do what you say you're gonna do, man. <laughs> Only speak how things are or how things are not. No verbal manipulation. So, so practically, uh, keep a calendar. Guess what? If you keep a calendar, then you know what you're committed to, and then you can respond adequately to people asking to you to make commitments. Crazy. I'm, I'm learning this about myself. Uh, respond to people's emails or texts. Don't just leave them on red because you're like, I don't know how to respond to that. I want to say yes, but, but what if something, just respond. If someone asks you to commit to something, don't say yes to save face because you want them to like you, but know you're going to back out or ghost them in the back end. Say, hey, thanks for asking that of me. I can't commit to that right now. Ask me again later. <laughs> just let your yes be yes. 
Let you know be no. The principle here is to care more about others than you do your reputation or you getting the best option. So, Matthew chapter 5, 20 through 37, deep breath. Some challenging words tonight. And the question for us is, uh, what do we do with all this? Uh, If you're anything like me, um, you're probably feeling like I'm about to walk out of here tonight, uh, feeling, feeling like I'm a pretty bad person. I don't think there's many ways to read these words and walk away thinking, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, yeah, no, right? Have you ever angered? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever committed adultery? Have you you maybe divorced wrongly? Have you sworn falsely or, or lied? Jesus is pointing at what's going on in our hearts. Remember at the beginning he said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees in order for you to enter into my kingdom. And so we're, we're, we're kind of left here wondering like, okay, then how is that possible? Because Jesus, you said the most religious people on earth hadn't figured it out. And I'm pretty sure, like I've checked Jesus, I've done all the things that you told me not to do. So, so what are you talking about? Jesus' point is that even the Pharisees and all their religious rule keeping fell short of righteousness. Right? The Pharisees had these perfectly outwardly obedient lives. But like Jesus says, you need inwardly obedient lives. You need hearts that like love God and want to love people and want to please God. Jesus' point is we all fall short of that. None of us have done that perfectly. So the question then is, how do we enter his kingdom? How do we get this exceeding righteousness? Well, here here are the three things we must do. Every person in here must do these three things. Number one, we have to admit that we haven't lived righteously, that we can't live righteously, that we won't live righteously on our own. We have to admit this and face the music. We don't show up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I got this, bro. No, you don't. You haven't and you won't on your own power. And friend, we we can't believe that God will accept and invite us into his kingdom on the basis of our effort alone. If you have a criminal on trial in a court case and he tells the judge, yeah, but judge, I've, I've like tried really hard to be a good person in all these other areas. We'd like scoff at that. How much more so with the holy God of the universe? So first and foremost, we have to face the music and own up and come before God and say, God, this is humiliating. I've blown it. I've absolutely blown it. I haven't lived up to your standard for my life. I haven't and I won't and I can't. This is being poor in spirit. Number two, from there, there's good news in this. Number two, from there, we fall upon Jesus, life, death, and resurrection to justify us, not our rule keeping. That word justify is to be, to, uh, it means to be declared righteous before God, to be made right before God. So we don't keep up our own rule keeping to try to do that. We have to fall on Jesus' rule keeping in our place. Here, here's the fascinating part. Um, imagine just right now, maybe you could close your eyes for this. Imagine 
that Jesus somehow, some way sits down with you, you have a face-to-face conversation with him. He says, hey, Ben, or hey, whatever your name is. Um, just, just so you know, today, I, I wanna talk to you, this is Jesus. I wanna talk to you about your adultery or I wanna talk to you about your lust or I wanna talk to you about your anger or I wanna talk to you about your divorce. And Jesus, grace and in truth says, this is sin in your life. Jesus says those words to you. And what's fascinating is he puts the ball in your court and what you say next will elicit his response to you. So if you respond to Jesus' confrontation and you say, yeah, Jesus, I know you say those things, but listen, I'm not as bad as that person. Or or Jesus, you don't understand. Um, There's kind of a reason for this. If you begin to make excuses and you justify yourself, you meet a Jesus who will come against you. You say, okay, you wanna justify yourself? That's fine, I can't justify you then. And you will face his judgment. You can open your eyes. But if Jesus puts the ball in your court, he says, this is sin. And you sit before him and you do number one and you say, yeah, Jesus, you're right, I've blown it. I admit that, I confess that, Jesus, I I wanna repent of that. I see the weight of my sin. I see the weight of how I rebelled against you. Then you meet a Jesus who will not condemn you, but who will cover you. He won't heap on guilt, but he'll deliver you from shame. And the only way he can do that is because he lived a perfectly righteous life in your place. He died a sacrificial death on the cross and he rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death forever. The, the key is when you trust in him, when you believe that he's done all of that for you, then what God does is he takes Jesus' righteousness and he stamps it on you in a moment. He can do that because Jesus wore your unrighteousness on the cross. So in a moment, when you trust Jesus, when you fall on his perfect life, his sin-bearing death and his resurrection, in a moment, God can look at you and say, exceeding righteousness, why? Because you're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. But it doesn't end there, it gets even better. Number three, if you do number two, then you get number three. We fall upon the grace of God to empower us to obey him. good news of the gospel is that when we come to Jesus, he makes us right with God. He grants us an exceeding righteousness. But then what he also does is he gives us his Holy Spirit. He, his, his spirit comes within us and it makes our hearts new. He takes our hearts of stone that, that don't love God and don't love neighbor and gives us hearts of flesh that can love God and love neighbor by the power of his spirit. And he gives us grace to become people who can actually obey the Sermon on the Mount. If we trust Jesus and we fall upon his grace to empower us to obey, he will actually transform us to look less and less like the old dead people who've been laid in the grave and more and more like Jesus himself. So Christian, tonight, if there's a person who came into your mind that you've been angry at, listen, by God's grace, via the power of the Holy Spirit, you can resist the temptation now because of his grace. You can resist the temptation to sit in your anger and you can pray to God and say, God, give me the the help, give me the grace to obey you even though I don't want to. And you can go and pursue reconciliation and forgiveness with that person. 
And as you do that, he will transform you from the inside out. Christian, you can resist the temptation to entertain sexual desire or pursue it or act on it. Why? Because he's given you the Holy Spirit and his grace. So you can pray like right now tonight and say, Lord, would you help me see people the way you see people? And when you do that, he'll transform you from the inside out. Christian, you can resist the temptation to lie or to make oaths falsely. You can pray to God right now and say, Lord, would you help me be a person of integrity like, like you, you and all your holiness? God, would you help me care more about what you think than what others think of me? God, would you make me content in you so I'm not trying to get the, the best option for my life all the time? You do that, and little by little, he'll transform you from the inside out. And finally, if you're considering divorce tonight, or if, if you've been divorced tonight, um, listen, I don't know your story, again, but, but what I do know is this. There's, there's no sin that's a match for his grace. There's no sin that's a match for his grace. There's no brokenness that's more powerful than his redeeming power. So if you're in this place tonight, what I want you to know is that if you receive Jesus' love and forgiveness, he will empower you starting tonight to walk forward in obedience in a new way. There's good news in that. Healing can happen in your life. Redemption is possible. Shame can be removed. And if you're on the other side of this, if a spouse told you that they were done with you, no, Jesus isn't done with you. If a, if a spouse abandoned you, know that Jesus will not abandon you. If a spouse was not faithful and true to their words, know that Jesus will always be faithful and true to his words. So tonight, um, I want to be really clear. Christian, where is Jesus asking you to obey in a new way tonight? Is there, is there sin that he's identified in your heart and he's saying, you need to give that to me? You need to take this seriously, like the snakes in the ceiling. You need to let my grace come in. You need to come to me. You need to repent of that. You need to seek forgiveness of that person. You need to go and tell them that you lied to them. What is Jesus putting on you, convicting you of, that you need to walk in a new way of life in? Tonight, if you're not a Christian, please hear me. The message tonight is, is not start behaving like this and then you'll be loved by God. The message is you are desperately loved by God. So much so that even though you've failed at all of this, like all of us have, he sent his one and only son to purchase and redeem you, to take your unrighteousness and to take it upon himself and to give you his righteousness and his life, death, and resurrection. So if you've been coming into this space for a while and you're still like, I'm not sure I'm out with Jesus, I'm kind of just exploring him, my question is what's holding you back? His forgiveness and redemption is available right now tonight. What's holding you back? What's stopping you? So man, if you have any questions about this, anything is weighing on you, uh, myself or my wife, Jess, would, would love to talk to you afterwards, answer any questions you might have, I'll maybe pray with you. Christian, where's God asking you to obey and walk in the new way of life? If you're not a follower of Jesus, what's holding you back?
what's stopping you. Maybe you can grab someone and talk to them about that tonight. I'm gonna pray for us.